poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into The Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you for the next hour with poetry and music. Today, we will start with a piece by Sol Williams, an American poet, writer, actor and musician known for his blend of poetry and alternative hip-hop and for his leading role in the 1998 independent film Slam. This piece, Gunshots by Computer, is done in collaboration with Nine Inch Nails. and Nine Inch Nails with Gunshots by Computer. War continues. Has it ever ended? Why do we not learn from our mistakes? The following piece is a Chinese poem by an anonymous poet where the citizens address the Minister of War, asking why they continue to lead them from misery to misery. The poem is called Minister of War and is performed by Joan Baez.
Minister of War, we are the king's claws and fangs. Why should you roll us on from misery to misery, giving us no place to stop in or take rest? Minister of War, we are the king's claws and teeth. Why should you roll us from misery to misery, giving us no place to come to and stay? Minister of War, surely you are not wise. Why should you roll us from misery to misery? We have mothers who lack food.
Korea with The Gun Song. And before that, Joan Baez with Minister of War from her album Baptism. The miseries of war are considered in this next poem called The Realities of War by Australian bush poet Jack Drake. In the poem, a son tries to understand his father's experiences as a combat soldier. Dad was not a combat soldier, but he played his part as well. Hauling ammo to the front, he saw his share of shot and shell. The only things he'd talk about were the mateship and the fun, but not a word about the bloodshed and the harvest of the gun. I listened to the stories he and his old mates would say when I drove him to the service and the pub on Anzac Day. They laugh about the navvy tricks and ratbag digger pranks, but to their fallen comrades, they just will their silent thanks. Still with the gory fascination of an inexperienced kid, I passed them beers and tried to glean the secrets that they hid. My Wild West mentality craved to hear the things they saw, but by mute consent, they covered the realities of war. Then my dad's mate Trevor Parker led me quietly away and said, Jack, the things you want to know are better left to lay. We understand the questions of the ones who were not there, but forcing memories on the ones who were simply isn't fair. That's why none of us like talking of the horrors that we saw. All that death or glory bullshit has no real place in war. I hope you never load and fire as shells tear up the ground. Splattered with your best mate's blood while death is all around. May God decree you never see your friend sprawled in the clay, shot to bits and crying for a mother far away, chopped down by machine gun fire and pleading to be dead as rifles crackle viciously and shells whine overhead. Then Trevor Parker stammered and forced himself to say how he held his mate's intestines in while life force ebbed away and I felt acute embarrassment and shame washed over me when the tears poured down his face cause I'd unleashed the memory. Mr Parker, Christ I'm sorry, I mumbled in my shame. He clasped me by the shoulder and said, son, war's not a game. I understand your interest, that's why I took you to one side, but it hurts too much to talk about the ones of us who died. He said if you hear a soldier skite and glorify the war, you can bet he worked behind a desk in admin or the store. The ones who fought up at the front won't have too much to say. And we both dragged out our hankies and wiped our tears away. We walked back in the bar and Dad glanced at us as we came. He was laughing at a yarn about a crown and anchor game. And the look that passed between them there, Trevor, and my dad confirmed he knew about the little talk that we just had. Since then I've had occasion to observe some army types, peacetime soldiers loud, declaiming their gung-ho service hype. They're but a shallow imitation of the men who went before. 
Those facing live round knew the true realities of war. And they wouldn't talk about it. All the carnage and the pain. They just picked up the pieces and got on with life again. So I'm sorry, you old diggers, for my tactless, crass mistake. I see now that you're all heroes, like my father, Alec Drake. Now each Anzac Day I cheer them, and for me there is no doubt, when I see the old men marching, some with medals, some without, I respect how they all suffered, and the gift to us they gave. But the realities of war, those men will carry to the grave. you masters of war you that build all the guns you that build the death planes you that build the big bombs you that hide behind walls you that hide behind desks I just want you to know I can see through your masks you that never done nothing but build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand You hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive a world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten their triggers For others to fire And you sit back and watch when the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion As young people's blood Flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud You've thrown the worst fear That can never be hurled The fear to bring children Into the world or threaten my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins How much do I know To talk out of turn You might say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned There's one thing I know Though I'm younger than you Even Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When you're dead 
that takes its toll All the money you made will never buy back your soul You are listening to The Bohemian Beat produced at Bay FM and Byron Bay and heard nationally across the community radio network. We just heard Judy Collins with a Bob Dylan cover, Masters of War, and before that, Jack Drake and Roger Lott with The Realities of War. How do artists express the horrors of the realities of war? An electronica band called Tear Gas and Plate Glass, who have been described as a bold experimental vision, combine dark ambient and drone music with spoken word in a confrontational manner to reclaim language and break the spell that war is necessary. This piece is called One Day Across the Valley. Then. When the war began, people changed. One day across the valley, we saw houses burning and people fleeing from their homes. I was a young girl. My parents thought the church was safe because no one would be killed in the church. When we arrived, I could see the older people were very sad and upset. Everybody was scared. But nobody knew what was going to happen.
Talk tough, keep it simple, act the larrikin Make him think that you're one of them Just like a mate, repeat the sentiment Ain't this fucking country great? Now he's hit his stride, he's got them hypnotized Convinced them there's a threat to their very way of life And now the lights fade, and he walks away He played it perfectly to keep the power one more day How does it sit with you? How do you sleep at night? Does it worry you at all? Are you dead inside? I hang my head, heavy heart, I'm so ashamed It's in my backyard, but not in my name The sun beats down hot upon a prison camp A family huddles in a tent with no ceiling fan The days roll into each other in the worst way A young boy celebrates his ninth birthday At night he hears people weeping, it's a common sound He's used to seeing things, he saw his sister drown He wonders if it's real, he wonders who to trust His mum and dad are like ghosts, they don't talk too much He kicks a soccer ball in an empty field One of the guards kicks it back and compliments his skill The boy tells the guard, I turn nine today The guard smiles, stops, then he looks away He says, little man, one day I hope you understand When you're older and your dignity is still intact And you look back at this vicious treatment Not all were complicit, not all were indecent How does it sit with you? How do you sleep at night? Does it worry you at all? Do you sympathize? I hang my head, heavy heart, I am so ashamed It's in my backyard, but not in my name Not in my name not in my name, not in my name! This is the Bohemian Beat, and that was Joelistics with Not In My Name. And before that, Tear Gas and Plate Glass with One Day Across the Valley. American historian and activist Howard Zinn, who lived between 1922 and 2010, says in his book Artists in a Time of War, published in 2004, political power is controlled by the corporate elite and the arts are the locale for a kind of guerrilla warfare in the sense that guerrillas look for apertures and opportunities where they can have an effect. This next piece is from a talk based on the book Artists in Times of War, where Zen considers the transcendental role of the artist. And what comes to mind when I think of the, you know, the relationship of the artist to society, what should be the relationship of the artist to society, and with me it's always a question of what should be and not what is. But I think of the word transcendent, which is a word I've never used in public. <laughs> but it was the only thing I could come up with to describe uh, what I think about the role of the artist. And by that I mean, you know, not, you know, Immanuel Kant's, well, yes, sort of close to it, but not really <laughs> his idea of what is transcendent, something like it. But the, the idea is that the artist transcends the immediate uh, transcends the here and now. The artist, well, transcends the madness of the world, transcends the madness of terrorism, transcends the madness of war. And uh, the artist thinks outside the framework and acts and paints and does music 
and rights outside the framework that society has, has created. And, and the artist may do s- no more than, and I don't mean to minimize it by saying no more than, the artist may do more than you know, give us uh, beauty and laughter, uh, passion, surprise, drama. And that's, that's good. Uh, that is, the artist needn't apologize for just doing that, because in doing that, the, the artist is telling us what the world should be like, even if it isn't that way now. And the artist is, is taking us away from the moments of horror that we experience every day in this world, some days more than others, and, and showing us something else, showing us what is possible. Stornstein with In Spite of Everything from their album No Ever, a suite of portraits, poems by E.E. E. Cummings. And before that, American historian Howard Zinn with The Transcendent Role of the Artist from a series of talks based on his book Artists in a Time of War. After his experience as a bombardier in World War II, Zinn became convinced that there could no longer be such a thing as a just war, because the vast majority of victims in modern warfare are increasingly innocent civilians. This is another piece by Zinn called Anti-War Novelists, Poets and Playwrights. I wanted to point to some other artists who spoke out against war, E.E. E. Cummings, 
I sing of Olaf, glad and big, whose warmest heart recoiled at war, a conscientious objector. But though all kinds of officers, a yearning nation's blue-eyed pride, their passive prey did kick and curse, until for where their clarion voices and boots were much the worse, and egged the first-class privates on his rectum wickedly to tease by means of skillfully applied bayonets roasted hot with heat. Olaf, upon what were once knees, does almost ceaselessly repeat, there is some shit I will not eat. And Eugene O'Neill, the great playwright, and this was six months after Pearl Harbor, this is important because E. Cummings was reacting to World War I, and other writers were reacting to World War I, the, uh, that great martial spirit that was summoned up in 1917 when they were getting the United States into war and, and when uh, they were marshalling people into line and, and the flag was being waved and then the war was over and people looked at the 10 million dead on the battlefields of Europe and asked, what was this all about? And then the, the disillusionment began to arise. Uh, people began to think again. Because after that first wave of flag waving and bugles blowing and let's this, we gotta do this and look at the terrible things they did and look at the, and yes, and terrible things were being done. And so therefore, we have to do terrible things. That's war. War is terrible things done on one side and terrible things done on the other side. And then, after a while, the, the second thoughts come. Uh, there are all these people dead, and what did we accomplish? What have we done? And that's what happened after World War I. That's what led to the writings of John Dos Passos and Ernest Hemingway and Ford, Maddox Ford, and that great novel, that great anti-war novel by Dalton Trumbo, uh, Johnny Got His Gun, which I recommend to all of you. You can read it in one evening, and uh, you won't forget it. Uh, but it's good to remember that, even when the war is presumably a good war, because wars always look good at the beginning. They always look good at the beginning to a lot of people because this, this rush of, of fervor based on something terrible that has been done and something that must be done in retaliation. And then only later does the, the thinking begin and the questioning begin. And the time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. Say, whoa, the people up 
and kings and before that from a series of lectures artists in a time of war by american historian howard zinn where he makes reference to the anti-war novel by american novelist and screenwriter dalton trumbo called johnny got his gun published in 1939. now the story is about a young american soldier serving in world war one who awakens in a hospital bed after being caught in the blast of an exploding artillery shell he gradually realises that he has lost his arms, legs and all of his face, including his eyes, ears, teeth and tongue. But that his mind functions perfectly, leaving him a prisoner in his own body. I will read an excerpt from the novel. 
You can always hear the people who are willing to sacrifice somebody else's life. They're plenty loud and they talk all the time. You can find them in churches and schools and newspapers and legislators and Congress. That's their business. They sound wonderful. Death before dishonour, this ground sanctified by blood, these men who died so gloriously, they shall not have died in vain. Our noble dead. Hmm. But what do the dead say? Did anybody ever come back from the dead? Any single one of the millions who got killed? Did any of them ever come back and say, by God, I'm glad I'm dead because death is always better than dishonor? Did they say, I'm glad I died to make the world safe for democracy? Did they say, I like death better than losing liberty? Did any of them ever say, it's good to think I got my guts blown out for the honor of my country? Did any of them ever say, look at me, I'm dead, but I died for decency and that's better than being alive? Did any of them ever say, here I am and I've been rotting for two years in a foreign grave, but it's wonderful to die for your native land? Did any of them say, hooray, I died for womanhood and I'm happy to see how I sing even though my mouth is choked with worms? Nobody but the dead know whether all these things people talk about are worth dying for or not. And the dead can't talk. So the words about noble deaths and sacred blood and honour and such are all put into dead lips by grave robbers and fakes who have no right to speak for the dead. If a man says death before dishonour, he is either a fool or a liar because he doesn't know what death is. He isn't able to judge. He only knows about living. He doesn't know anything about dying. If he is a fool and believes in death before dishonour, let him go ahead and die. But all the little guys who are too busy to fight should be left alone. And all the guys who say, death before dishonour is pure bull, the important thing is life before death, they should be left alone too. Because the guys who say life isn't worth living without some principle so important you're willing to die for it, they are all nuts. And the guys who say, you'll see, there'll come a time, you can't escape, you're going to have to fight and die because it'll mean your very life. Why, they are also nuts. They are talking like fools. They are saying that two and two make nothing. They are saying that a man will have to die in order to protect his life. If you agree to fight, you agree to die. Now, if you die to protect your life, you ain't alive anyhow, so how is there any sense in a thing like that? A man doesn't say, I will starve myself to death to keep from starving. He doesn't say, I will spend all my money in order to save my money. He doesn't say, I will burn down my house in order to keep it from burning. Why then should he be willing to die for the privilege of living? There ought to be at least as much common sense about living and dying as there is about going to the grocery store and buying a loaf of bread. And all the guys who died, all the five million or seven million or ten million who went out and died to make the world safe for democracy, to make the world safe for words without meaning. How did they feel about it just before they died? How did they feel as they watched their blood pump out into the mud? How did they feel when the gas hit their lungs and began eating them all away? How did they feel as they lay crazed in hospitals and looked there straight in the face and saw him come and take them? If the thing they were fighting for was important enough to die for, then it was also important enough for them to be thinking about it in the last minutes of their lives. That stood to reason. 
life is awfully important. So if you're going to give it away, you ought to think with all your mind in the last moments of your life about the thing you traded it for. So did all those kids die thinking of democracy and freedom and liberty and honour and safety of their home and the stars and stripes forever? You're goddamn right they didn't. They died crying in their minds like little babies. They forgot the thing they were fighting for, the things they were dying for. They thought about things a man can understand. They died yearning for the face of a friend. They died whimpering for the voice of a mother, a father, a wife, a child. They died with their hearts sick for one more look at the place where they were born. Please God, just one more look. They died moaning and sighing for life. They knew what was important. They knew that life was everything and they died with screams and sobs. They died with only one thought in their minds and that was, I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. He ought to know. He was the nearest thing to a dead man on earth. He was a dead man with a mind that could still think. He knew all the answers that the dead knew and couldn't think about. He could speak for the dead because he was one of them. He was the first of all the soldiers who had been dead since the beginning of time who still had a brain left to think with. Nobody could dispute with him. Nobody could prove him wrong because nobody knew but he. He could tell all these high-talking, murdering sons of bitches who screamed for blood just how wrong they were. He could tell them, Mister, there's nothing worth dying for, I know, because I'm dead. There's no word worth your life. I would rather work in a coal mine deep under the earth and never see sunlight need crusts and water and work 20 hours a day. I would rather do that than be dead. I would trade democracy for life. I would trade independence and honour and freedom and decency for life. I will give you all these things and you give me the power to walk and see and hear and breathe the air and taste my food. You take the words. Give me back my life. I'm not asking for a happy life now. I'm not asking for a decent life or an honourable life or a free life. I'm beyond that. I'm dead, so I'm simply asking for life, to live, to feel, to be something that moves over the ground and isn't dead. I know what death is, and all you people who talk about dying for words don't even know what life is. There's nothing noble about dying. Not even if you die for honour. Not even if you die the greatest hero the world ever saw. Not even if you're so great your name will never be forgotten. And who's that great? The most important thing is your life, little guys. You're worth nothing dead except for speeches. Don't let them kid you anymore. Pay no attention when they tap you on the shoulder and say, come along, we've got to fight for liberty, or whatever their word is. There's always a word. Just say, mister, I'm sorry, I got no time to die, I'm too busy, and then turn and run like hell. If they say coward, why don't pay any attention because it's your job to live, not to die. If they talk about dying for principles that are bigger than Life, you say, mister, you're a liar. Nothing is bigger than life. There's nothing noble in death. What's noble about lying in the ground and rotting? What's noble about never seeing the sunshine again? What's noble about having your legs and arms blown off? What's noble about being an idiot? What's noble about being blind and deaf and dumb? What's noble about being dead? Because when you're dead, mister, it's all over. It's the end. 
You're less than a dog, less than a rat, less than a bee or an ant, less than a white maggot crawling around on a dung heap. You're dead, mister, and you died for nothing. You're dead, mister. Dead. While going the road to sweet thy Drums and guns and 
with Johnny I Hardly Knew Ya and before that an excerpt from the novel by Dalton Trumbo called Johnny Got His Gun. Trumbo conceived of the project of Johnny Got His Gun early in the 1930s after reading an article about the Prince of Wales' visit to a Canadian veterans hospital to see a soldier who had lost all his senses and his limbs. Well we have come to the end of the hour and for more information and podcasts, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. We will end with a track, The Universal Soldier by First Aid Kit. Thank you for joining me on The Bohemian Beat. I'm ready. Yeah.
to blame His orders come from far away no more They come from here and there And you and me and brother Can't you see This is not the way we put the end to war